Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. The Bible reading is from the book of Numbers, chapter 5, and some verses from chapter 6. The Lord said to Moses, Command the Israelites to send away from the camp anyone who has a defiling skin disease or a discharge of any kind, or who is ceremonially unclean because of a dead body. Send away male and female alike. Send them outside the camp so they will not defile their camp where I dwell among them. The Israelites did so. They sent them outside the camp. They did just as the Lord had instructed Moses. The Lord said to Moses, say to the Israelites, Any man or woman who wrongs another in any way and so is unfaithful to the Lord is guilty and must confess the sin they have committed. They must make full restitution for the wrong they have done, add a fifth of the value to it and give it all to the person they have wronged. But if that person has no close relative to whom restitution can be made for the wrong, the restitution belongs to the Lord and must be given to the priest along with the ram with which atonement is made for the wrongdoer. All the sacred contributions the Israelites bring to a priest will belong to him. Sacred things belong to their owners, but what they give to the priest will belong to the priest. Then the Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, If a man's wife goes astray and is unfaithful to him, so that another man has sexual relations with her and this is hidden from her husband and her impurity is undetected since there is no witness against her and she has not been caught in the act and if feelings of jealousy come over her husband and he suspects his wife and she is impure or if he is jealous and suspects her even though she is not impure then he is to take his wife to the priest He must also take an offering of a tenth of an ephah of barley flour on her behalf. He must not pour olive oil on it or put incense on it, because it is a grain offering for jealousy, a reminder offering to draw attention to wrongdoing. The priest shall bring her and have her stand before the Lord. Then he shall take some holy water in a clay jar and put some dust from the tabernacle floor into the water. After the priest has had the woman stand before the Lord, he shall loosen her hair and place in her hands the reminder offering, the grain offering for jealousy, while he himself holds the bitter water that brings a curse. Then the priest shall put the woman under oath and say to her, If no other man has had sexual relations with you, and you have not gone astray and become impure while married to your husband, may this bitter water that brings a curse not harm you. But if you have gone astray while married to your husband, and you have made yourself impure by having sexual relations with a man other than your husband, here the priest is to put the woman under this curse. May the Lord cause you to become a curse among your people when he makes your womb miscarry and your abdomen swell. May this water that brings a curse enter your body so that your abdomen swells or your womb miscarries. 
Then the woman is to say, Amen, so be it. The priest is to write these curses on a scroll and then wash them off into the bitter water. He shall make the woman drink the bitter water that brings a curse, and this water that brings a curse and causes bitter suffering will enter her. The priest is to take from her hands the grain offering for jealousy, wave it before the Lord, and bring it to the altar. The priest is then to take a handful of the grain offering as a memorial offering and burn it on the altar. After that, he is to have the the woman drink the water. If she has made herself impure and been unfaithful to her husband, this will be the result. When she is made to drink the water that brings a curse and causes bitter suffering, it will enter her. Her abdomen will swell and her womb will miscarry and she will become a curse. If, however, the woman has not made herself impure but is clean, she will be cleared of guilt and will be able to have children. This, then, is the law of jealousy when a woman goes astray and makes herself impure while married to her husband, or when feelings of jealousy come over a man because he suspects his wife. The priest is to have her stand before the Lord and is to apply this entire law to her. The husband will be innocent of any wrongdoing, but the woman will bear the consequences of her sin. So chapter 6, verses 5 to 9. During the entire period of their Nazarite vow, no razor may be used on their head. They must be holy until the period of their dedication to the Lord is over. They must let their hair grow long. Throughout the period of their dedication to the Lord... The Nazarite must not go near a dead body. Even if their own father or mother or brother or sister dies, they must not make themselves ceremonially unclean on account of them, because the symbol of their dedication to God is on their head. Throughout the period of their dedication, they are consecrated to the Lord. And then continuing in chapter 6, verse 21. This is the law of the Nazarite, who vows offerings to the Lord in accordance with their dedication, in addition to whatever else they can afford. They must fulfill the vows they have made according to the law of the Nazarite. The Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron and his sons, This is how you are to bless the Israelites. Say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. So they will put my name on the Israelites and I will bless them. And this is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Judy, very much. Uh, Do you keep your Bibles open if you've got them with you? And let's pray. Our Father in heaven, please, by your Spirit, open up that text to us that we might understand what it's about and that we might hear good news there for all of us, for your, your people, the church. Please draw us near to you as you are near to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Friends, I think you get two types of travel guides, don't you? You get the one type of travel guide that is really quite functional. It's got lots of details in you know, train times and hotel phone numbers, that sort of travel guide. But then the other kind of travel guide you get are the ones that are a bit more of a story. 
I'm thinking of the Bill Bryson-style books, if you know him, someone who visits a country and tells the stories about their experiences. They give a few snapshots of the things that they saw and the people that they met, and then they try and interpret them and tell you something about that country through their story. One that I'm thinking of for uh, Britain, uh, for the UK, is um, a lady who came and she saw that British people always sit in their back gardens. You know, rather than in many other parts of the world, people sit in their front gardens so they can interact with their neighbours and see people who are coming down the street. British people sit in their back gardens, don't we? And why is that? It's because we're a very private people. These types of travel guides, tourist guides, they tell you some stories and then they interpret you. And I think these are far more interesting books to read, aren't they? Because they give you a flavour of what the country is actually like, and hopefully, they make you want to go there. They make you want to visit. They make you perhaps even want to live there. Friends, I'd like you to think of that sort of travel guide as we read this passage, because I think that's what's happening for Israel in Numbers 5 and 6. I wonder what you thought as that passage was read for us. It seems like a few randomly selected laws, doesn't it? And strange ones at that. And then followed by this seemingly unconnected blessing for the high priest. What is this section doing in the Bible? Well, I want to suggest that actually those laws, they fit together, and they fit into the whole story of Numbers as well. I want to suggest that they're chosen for a reason, like that travel guide, giving us a flavor of what the nation will be like. Because remember where we are. If you were here last week, you remember that we're early on in the story of Israel, early on in their history, as they're preparing to go off into their promised land. And this section, chapters 1 to 10, is all about getting ready. So we've seen sort of details about how they should camp, how they should organize themselves with God in the center. And then here we've got how they will live as a people of God with God in the center. And I hope that perhaps as we read this section, it might make us think, huh, that does sound like a good place to live. If I could, maybe I would go back there to live there. Not that we actually can, but maybe the application for us will be to make this place a bit more like that place. Let me see if I can convince you. So part one, snapshot one. Chapters 5, verses 1 to 4, they are serious about cleanliness. Serious about cleanliness. Chapter 5, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Command the Israelites to send away from the camp anyone who has a defiling skin disease or a discharge of any kind or who is ceremonially unclean because of a dead body. Cleanliness in the Bible is an interesting idea. It's not what we would think of. It's not about having a clean house, clean surfaces, that sort of thing. But it's not the other thing we might think. It's not about this sort of moral category of of doing something right or wrong. It's actually somewhere in between. It's, um, It's things which mean we can't come near to God. Not necessarily bad things, but things which are symbolic 
of the world not being right. So it's mostly to do with issues of sickness and death. Here it's skin diseases, unnatural discharges, uh, touching dead bodies. In our family, um, this week we've had chicken pox. And so we would be ceremonially unclean. We, would, we have had to go away from the camp, uh, out of the camp, and then come back when it's better. Now, this isn't part of the Christian life anymore. I'm thankful for that. But it, you know, and for us, it does sound quite strange. But if you think about it, for them back then, it, it was what they had to do, and it would have become quite a natural part of life. It wouldn't have been that uncommon, just a feature of their society. And you can imagine this visitor to Israel reporting back, doing his own Bill Bryson-style book. And, and what would be the first thing they'd say? Well, they really care about cleanliness. They've got all these rules, and they have to leave the camp occasionally and then come back. And why? Well, it's because God, at their center, is holy. And, and, and life around him is meant to be without faults, without flaws, sickness and death. They can't come near him. Ultimately, the dream is that one day this nation might be clean, completely clean, without any sickness, without any death, a holy nation. But it was a dream, a dream of something to come in the future, a picture of that. So snapshot one, they are serious about cleanliness. Snapshot two, verses five to ten, they are serious about making things right. Serious about making things right. Five verse five, the Lord said to Moses, say to the Israelites, any man or woman who wrongs another in any way and so is unfaithful to the Lord, is guilty and must confess the sin they have committed. They must make full restitution for the wrong they have done, add a fifth of the value to it, and give it all to the person they have wronged. So now, this is the moral category, sinfulness and guilt. If you sin against someone else, that means you're guilty before God. And so here they're given the ways that they are to make things right. So first they must confess it. And then they must pay it back. Pay it back with interest. Now then there's the more, the more things are said here. There's things about the offerings and what to do if there's no one to pay it back to. But there's all of that. But for now, the big picture, what would you see? You'd see a nation who cares about making things right. And why? Because there's a holy God who will not tolerate sin. It cannot be left unaddressed, unconfessed, undealt with. That's not okay. And don't you think that would be a good place to live? Where all these things are just dealt with immediately, up front, We'll talk about what this means for us in a bit, but I, I don't think it's too complicated to imagine, is it? Christians, the people of God, cannot just accept sin amongst us. We must be serious about confessing sin and making things right, admitting mistakes. And then, and only then, 
can we go on together as the people of God? Serious about making things right. Now, snapshot three, verses 11 to 31. This is longer, this is more complex. We'll spend a bit more time here. But the main point is that the people of God are serious about faithfulness. Serious about faithfulness. Faithfulness within marriage is a big deal. In this passage, it actually says that it makes you both unclean and guilty. So it's a combination of those two previous sections. It's so serious. Now, we could have learnt this point in any number of ways, but what we've got here is a passage describing the process by which a man can put his wife through a test when he thinks she may have been unfaithful. And eyebrows will have been raised as this passage was read. When Pete gave me the preaching series, I sort of looked through the passages and I was like, you've given me this? When I uh, presented some thoughts to the staff team last week, I said, uh, this passage is a little problematic. One of my female colleagues said, a little bit? <laughs> so let's be honest, to us this sounds problematic for various reasons, doesn't it? It's strange, drinking this sort of potion and seeing if it has an effect. It's a bit too mystical, a bit too magical for our liking. It's an ordeal for the woman to be put through. It's unpleasant. It's shaming. And it seems to be one-sided. There's no description of, of doing it the other way around for the potentially unfaithful husband. There's no comment on the other man potentially involved. It's an awkward passage for us. What would we say if our non-Christian friends found out about it? Maybe they're even here. Maybe we're, we're sat next to one and we're squirming. Well, look, though it's maybe a little uncomfortable, I think it's interesting and actually has some things which are quite encouraging for us when we ponder it a bit more. So there's a few things to say here. Firstly, I want to say this actually safeguards the woman in a radical way. If you compare this with what was going on in other cultures at the time, and even some cultures today, you'd rather be here. I've heard this week about comparable tests for potentially unfaithful wives in other places, and they're not pleasant, things like having to put your hand in a flame, and, and if you're innocent, you feel no pain, or, or being thrown into water, and if you're innocent, you'll survive, or it sounds like the Salem witch trials, doesn't it? You see, most tests of women are basically just abusive. But this actually safeguards the woman because they're presented before God. The men, that is the husband and the priest, they don't actually decide anything. They, uh, they don't carry out the punishment. It's all left to God. He knows what has actually happened and he will see that justice is done. But still, why mention it? Why bring it up? Why give it such a prominent place in this passage? Well, I think it's a bit like a strange incident in a film. You know, a murder mystery film. Early on in a film, something strange happens. You think, that's weird. Why did the camera cut to that at that moment? 
Well, we know that it's probably significant for something later on in the story. And it's just the same here. Numbers is a story. Chapters 1 to 36 is a full story. This isn't like Leviticus with with just a selection of laws. This is a story. And so this must be setting something up. And it is in three ways, I think. Firstly, the presumption here. The presumption here is that that, uh, men are faithful and women are suspicious, isn't it? But that's a setup because after 40 years wandering in the wilderness, in theory learning the lessons of the previous generations, what happens? Thousands of men commit adultery en masse. And the men reading numbers should be thinking, ah, maybe it's not our wives that are a problem. But then again, at the end of the story, secondly, the very last thing that happens, chapter 36, it's the story of some wonderful women who take marriage so seriously that they come to Moses asking for help about how to do it well. They're not the adulterous woman. But really, the biggest thing to say here, the most important way that this is relevant for the story of Numbers is this, it sets up the idea of a jealous husband who is testing his wife. But the husband is God, and the wife is Israel. Many times in the Bible, isn't it, that God is described as marrying his people, and God is described as jealous for his people, and his people are described as unfaithful. And in the story of Numbers, we get this journey that Israel is on. And on the journey, they face seven tests of their faithfulness. And seven times, they fail. And the people of God prove themselves to be the unfaithful wife. That's what this is about. This is a setup. But the wonder of the story of Numbers is that God sticks with them. He is gracious. He never abandons them. And the big thing which happens after seven failures of the test is that God puts together this elaborate and vast declaration of His blessing on the people of God, the unfaithful people. He says, I'm still with you. I'm sticking with you. I love you. And I'm going to take you into the promised land. And it's bonkers. As you read through, you'll keep on thinking, how can you be so sinful? How can you keep on getting it wrong? And God just says, I'm going to keep going with you. I still love you. I'm going to bless you. How many times, God? Seven times? Seventy-seven times? Serious about faithfulness. But it's only in theory for the people of God, but in reality for God himself. That's what you'd see if you observed Israel. And look, you might still have questions about the details of this section, and I'm happy to talk about them afterwards, but please see, this is a picture of our unfaithfulness and God's wonderful grace to us. That's what you get 
within the people of God. We've still got two more snapshots, though. So snapshot number four, we're going to have to be brief with these. Uh, Snapshot number four, serious about devotion. Chapter six, verses one to 21, serious about devotion. We didn't have time to read it all, uh, just a couple little bits there. Do read it later if you want. Uh, It's serious about devotion. Now, Now, this is kind of the opposite of the previous section. What's the opposite of unfaithfulness? Devotion. And the Nazarite vow is a way anyone can choose for a time to be extra devoted to God. Uh, the gist of it here is that there, there's, there's no wine for these people, no cutting of hair, no being in the presence of de- a dead body. And separation is the key word. Uh, Consecration is another really important one. It's about being clean and holy, especially devoted to God. And so even accidentally becoming unclean becomes a sin. Those first two categories, again, are combined here for the Nazarite. And and when they do become unclean, that's a sin. And so there's a process for making things right again. And this would make it into the tourist guide, wouldn't it? These people have this this honored thing that you can do called taking a Nazarite vow. and, And there's always some of them around. You can see them. And what does it show? Ultimately, that they take their God very seriously. These people, they're not casual about God. They're they're not going through the motions. They genuinely believe this, and they want to live it out wholeheartedly, giving themselves to God. And the dream is for the nation as a whole to be Nazarites, holy and different and devoted to God. It's a dream for them. It's a dream for us one day when we're in heaven. We will be living out this devotion, not literally, I presume, but this is the heart of our devotion before God, which we will be able to live out fully with Him. They are serious about devotion. Yet again, I think this is probably setting up the whole story to come because the people are so undevoted to God. They're so casual with Him. And that's what makes this final snapshot remarkable, I think. The final snapshot, number five, those last verses of chapter six, they are blessed by God. The people with God at this center are blessed. Six verse 22, the priests are given this special blessing to use. It's lovely. These are famous verses. You could have a whole sermon on it. These are verses that would be worth learning. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. The main idea is that the presence of God is so good. Having God in the midst, yes, it involves all this stuff that you need to be serious about, but it means then living with God, and he's a God of persistent blessing and grace. Even as the people mess up again and again, he will bless them. His face will be shining upon them. If nothing else, this should make us want to be there with them.
Well, what does this mean for us? There's certainly something to be said here, isn't there, about the church, the model set up for us. But before actually widening it out to all of us, I'd like to just focus in, narrow our attention down to see Jesus and to see how this was actually also a model for him and for his life. You see, when Jesus came, I think something amazing happened. He took all of this and he fulfilled it in a wonderful way which the Israelites of the time would never have expected. Consider some of the things that Jesus did. Jesus, he was serious about cleanliness, wasn't he? But he was so clean that he could make others clean. You know the stories. You've read the Gospels. Uh, Cleanliness is contagious, isn't it? If you touch someone who's unclean, you become unclean. But Jesus, he'd meet these unclean people, he'd meet the lepers, and he would touch them, and what would happen? He would heal them and make them clean. His cleanliness was contagious. Jesus was serious about making things right. He never did anything wrong himself. He never needed to make things right for himself. But he made it possible for us to be right with God. He made full restoration, not for himself, but for us. And Jesus, he was so faithful that he covers our unfaithfulness. Remember Jesus, he spoke so frankly, didn't he, about our unfaithfulness. Oh, faithless generation. That's what he called us. He spoke about how we all go away from God. He also spoke about how we so often fail in our marriages and in our sex lives. We're the adulterous people. Whether in our thoughts or in our actions, we know that we all fall short. But Jesus came, and he shows that God is still committed to us. He is faithful to us. And finally, Jesus, he was so serious about devotion to God that he never, ever sinned. He never, ever strayed. He never became unclean. His heart was completely for God All the time, so much so that in the Garden of Gethsemane, he could say, not your will, but mine. And then in obedience to God, he handed himself over to death in our place. He wasn't avoiding dead bodies. He became a dead body for us. And having risen, he now sits at the right hand of God and says, you can come in to the presence of God because of me. Jesus did all of this, and he did it all for us. Praise God for Jesus. Then where does this leave us? Well, I hope that perhaps this passage isn't quite so puzzling now. Rather, it's made us think that that, the Old Testament, Israel, in theory... Might have been a good place to live, though in practice we know that, uh, that it, they never lived up to this. But Jesus did. Jesus came. He lived up to this. So rather than longing for Israel, we should be longing for Jesus. And then perhaps start longing that our place might be able to live this out as well. Perhaps imagining the potential before us. We can be serious about cleanliness. It's different now, isn't it? It's a picture 
of God's holiness. It means that we really care about purity here. And it merges with being serious about making things right. We don't ignore sin, pretending it's not happening. Here we confess it and make things right. And we'll be serious about faithfulness, faithfulness in our marriages, holding out to society and to our children in particular how important marriage is, what it looks like to work at it and stick at it, but even more so how important it is to be faithful to God, not drifting from Him. And that's going to merge with this serious about devotion idea. Jesus calls us to wholehearted Christian living, showing the world that we're different and and not just going through the motions. We genuinely believe this and want to live it out. And in it all, we'll be living under the blessing of God. His grace and favor will be upon us forgiving us again and again, and living with us, present amongst us by His Holy Spirit. Meaning that the church is the best place we could possibly be. That's the potential. And as we start to live it out, it wouldn't surprise me if people on the outside are looking and thinking, I want to go there. I want to be a part of them living under the blessing of God. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this wonderful picture of the people of God. Please help us to understand. Please help us to believe. Please help us to see the wonder of Jesus' fulfillment and the potential of what it could look like for us. And please, by your grace, work this in us. Thank you, Lord, so much for your grace, your blessing, your favor. Even though we're so unfaithful, you stick with us. Thank you, Lord. Please bless us and keep us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.